Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast. I'm Sherry Budziak, CEO and founder of Source. Association 4.0 is how we describe the skills needed to navigate Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Association 4.0 podcast. My name is Sharon Rice, and I'm the Managing Director of Business Strategy for Source. Today, I have a new colleague with me, Stephen Welsh. Stephen recently joined the .org source team to help organizations deliver member value, generate revenue, optimize content development and integration, and build their brands. His specific expertise includes assessments to improve self-publishing programs and commercial partnerships, transitioning clients to open access publishing models, and establishing new markets for content, product, and services. Stephen has been an association leader for over 25 years. As an executive and CEO of the American College of Chess Physicians Medical Specialty Society with over 20,000 members in 100 plus countries, Stephen created a comprehensive collection of impactful publications and content that exceeded member needs and significantly contributed to the organization's growth. Stephen's broad experience coupled with a deep understanding of the challenges of the publishing environment provides him with a unique analytical insight that helps clients successfully transform their publishing operations. And so for these reasons and many, many more, Stephen, I'm really happy to talk to you today. So welcome. Oh, thanks very much, Sharon. I appreciate that. Um, I'm excited to be part of OrgSource. I'm excited to have the opportunity to work with you all and with your clients. Uh, When I was at the American College of Chess Physicians, we actually used OrgSource quite a bit for a a number of different projects. So I'm familiar with the team. I'm familiar with the value that you guys bring, and I'm just thrilled to be part of it. Yeah, well, we're so excited to have you here because traditionally publications have played such an important role um, with associations, and that role is is changing over time and especially has been impacted, I think, by the internet. So to get us started today, can you talk a little bit about the important contributions that publications have historically made to professional and trade associations and maybe how that's changing today? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny, it's what's not been changing today, right? Um, you mentioned the onset of the internet and yeah, that's been a game changer ever since uh, it, it really took foot. And um, we've really had a constant, really a constant environment of change and disruption in publishing. Now, you know, traditionally, most associations had either a trade magazine or a journal, or, or perhaps both. They publish newsletters. Many of them have book programs uh, and all sorts of different things, monographs, maybe guidelines, perhaps pro- professional assessments and certification study materials. I mean, it really runs the gamut of, of a lot of things and, and overlaps a lot into the educational efforts of associations and societies. Mm-hmm. And, and those were typically thought of as being big pieces of member value. And you know what's happened over the years is we've seen this increase in um, competition, for example, with the onset of the internet, with the onset of, of um, social media, self-publishing tools. We've seen a lot more players enter the market who are providing some of the same types of content and services. So on, uh, first of all, there's a lot of increased pressure on competition, which has made organizations really take a look at what are they providing? What value and, and you know, what's the value proposition to their membership and to their audience? 
and what channels and formats are they delivering that content in? And, and that's an area we can talk a little bit about today with all that disruption that's been taking place. Yeah, and so for, I think, science-based associations, science-based professions and industry, this, you know, the trend towards open access publication, which, you know, in my mind is somewhat research-based, has, you know, been something that a lot of associations are having to grapple with and, and to deal with because their academic journals um, are, are really kind of right in the mix of, of the type of publication that um, is included under open access. I, and I tend to equate open access or the rise in open access with the rise of delivering content on the internet and the accessibility of it or the, the ability to have it be more accessible online. But I'm not an expert in this area. Talk to me a little bit about where, what is, maybe define open access first, because I'm sure that there are some of our listeners who, who don't know exactly what that is and where did it come from and how is it impacting associations? Sure, that's a great question. And, and it is one that's really sort of the buzz in, in a lot of people's minds. What open access is, is really, it's a, it's a movement and it's a type of publication model. And what it is, is it's, the goal of it is to provide free and open online access to information. Um, such as publications, data sets, things like that. And um, a publication is really considered open access when there's no barriers to its access. So it's freely available for anyone to access, um, but they can also do more than that. They can download it, they can copy it, they can distribute it. Um, and, and that goes beyond just making the content free. It's really providing a broad license to also use that content and distribute it to others, which for societies who have typically had publications that are behind a member paywall, you know, that's, or a subscription paywall, that's a kind of a frightening concept because those publications are often one of the top member benefits. And suddenly you're looking at this movement where it, it came about really because government funding agencies that funded research didn't think it was right that Number one, they paid for this research to take place to the, to the researchers and to fund the studies and, and the things that they did. And then once it's published, there's, there's not unfettered access to it, that, this, that the publisher, whether it's a society or a commercial publisher or whatever, controls who gets to see it and who gets access to it and typically charges money for it. And, we, and many of us have experienced this, right? When let's say, for example, we've had a relative who uh, came down with some type of disease and we decided we wanted to learn more about it. And you do a Google search and you find this, what looks like a great article exactly about whatever this disease is and you click on it and oh, you have to pay $30 if you want access to this. Yet it might've been funded by the National Institutes of Health. And so this kind of created a, a topic area or really a movement could say we this content should be freely available at the point of the end user rather than it being behind a paywall and that poses a lot of challenges as we just kind of talked about for associations yeah and, and, and societies here clients kind of talk about this and associations are talking about the impact that it makes because they're um because of that important role that journals have played in um you know, not only from a financial perspective for the association, but from a, um, a legitimacy perspective, right? It's a trusted source of information and getting that information in the hands of professionals is so important. Um, it, it's kind of a conundrum because on the one hand, um, at least from my perspective, you can really see why these funding agencies would want to make sure that that information was getting out everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, you know, now we're, we are often talking about um, kind of communities that are, uh, have uh, extensive access to information, let's say scientific information and other communities that really don't and that the communities that don't perhaps can't afford it. And right. so when we look at, you know, the background of open access, you, I, at least I do, I do understand, you know, where these funding agencies are coming from and why they want the research that they're funding um, and the outcomes of that to be open to to everybody and to, you know, essentially advance human society. On the association right. side, you know, now we have a challenge to funding, right? How do we support these journals that that are so important to the professions and the trades? Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. And, and that's, that is the conundrum. And it's really kind of a mission versus a margin problem, right? Because for a lot of societies, they've seen those the, the, their publications are a, a revenue stream, or for many of them, they are. And so when you're looking at a challenge to that revenue stream, it obviously raises some alarm bells, but it's also an opportunity because when you think about it, it is delivering on mission. You're helping to get content out to the end users to who, who need it. It levels the playing field and you're really fulfilling that not-for-profit mission of providing information, education, or, or you know, whatever your not-for-profit mission is. And, you know, and so I think you, what we try to look at is there's ways to create a win out of what could be a potentially negative situation because on the backside of that, the plus of open access is that it makes content much more freely available and widely available. And like you said before, anyone can access it regardless of their socioeconomic status or the country they live in or whatever. Um, But what that does then is it opens up awareness. It helps build brand. It helps establish an organization as a trusted um, source of high quality information. And I think that's also a goal of most associations and societies is they wanna be the experts. They want to be, uh, they, they really wanna be the, the, the ones who are, who are providing the most trusted information to their constituency. And so there's a way to, to work through this where we can, we can find ways to transition that don't necessarily um, force us to kill the golden goose as it were. Yeah, I think you bring up so, two, really important points that I just want to take a second to explore a little bit more. So for associations that are really um, right now faced with the challenge uh, to their revenue streams of open access, what they're having to do is find different funding models. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that you've tackled in your, in your career and are you know, helping associations do. So if we're no longer in the pay-per-view kind of arena, that we traditionally have been in. Um, how do we get funding for the journal so we can keep um, distributing that information? Because distribution, you know, obviously is is key. But then there's this other part that you're that you're mentioning, especially today. There was a time in the past, probably again because of these publications, where the association was the um, undisputed source of reliable information. And it was the, for, for professionals and again, also the industry um, that they represent, it was the source of reliable information. Now, um, people are getting information from all sorts of different sources. We're less discerning as, as, as consumers of that information, I fear today, 
Um, and so this is a big problem, you know, and generally in society right now where we talk about most people getting their news now from Facebook um, or, you know, those, right. those sources right. aren't necessarily Twitter. as reliable, <laughs> but they're accessible, you know, they're right. there and they're in front of us. And so we're kind of consuming it. So we've, you know, we've got these two objectives. How do, in the, in the face of open access, how do we maintain a funding source so we can continue to distribute the information um, that we're getting and the content that we're getting and then how do we continue to hold up our brand as the reliable source? So do you have any tips for associations that are trying to tackle this right now? I mean, what, um, how would you go about helping them you know, to be able to hit those two goals? Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. And it's one that every organization that's looking at open access struggles with. And I think it, you know, there's a number of things. First of all, there's got to be some analysis done and kind of an audit done on your publishing, both the content that you're receiving, um, where it's coming from, how much of it is actually funded research. Uh, you know, if you're an organization that the majority of what you publish is funded, then you're going to be under increasing pressure to, to go completely open access because that's what the funding agencies are requiring. And, and that's the big change is there's mandates now where if they give this grant, it has to be published in a true open access publication down the line, which is making a lot of society say, oh, well, um, then we're going to have to address that if we want to continue to publish this level of, of information and research. However, a lot of organizations publish research that's not funded. And so there's an opportunity then to perhaps have uh, a publication that focuses on the, the, the traditional publishing model. And it may be necessary to do a spin-off open access publication so that you can then sort of publish the things that come in that require that open access, but you still have a vehicle for a more traditional publishing model. Um, in some cases, you may be able to do a hybrid where you have a, a publication and some of the articles are subscription-based and some of them are able to be published on a one-off basis open access. That's what we call a hybrid. And so there are different, there's definitely different options available and going through an analysis to understand what you're publishing, where it's coming from. Because what, what happens with open access is the publisher, whether it's the society or, or your commercial publishing partner, if, if you're not self-published, is, is, is charging what's called a, a, an APC, an article processing charge. So in other words, somebody's paying up front for that article to be open access. And what's happening is these funders are earmarking funds to be paid for open access publications. So there's monies available. It's just a matter of making sure that your authors know how, how to get access to them and where to go for them. And then the other piece is that uh, there's also uh, publishers are beginning to create completely different types of, of agreements with institutions where it used to be they would they would sell these big subscription collections of content to libraries and institutions. Now they're doing what's called transformative agreements, which the, the institution sort of goes into a partnership with the publisher where the researchers at that institution have money earmarked to fund those open access publications. And so there's, and, and you know, I, I, it's complex, I realize, and we can't probably get into all the detail today, but you know, that's what I'm here for, right? Is to try to help people navigate all these different complexities of understanding what it is that they're publishing, what's the correct format, what's the correct subscription model. Um, and then, which begs the next question is, is the other thing is where, and, and how is your publishing strategy integrated with the other educational and content strategies within your organization? Because a lot of times the, 
journals or magazines or publications are kind of off on an island and aren't always thought of as the fact that you know with the digital uh, with web-based digital content being distributed in all kinds of manners content is content and so we have to start thinking about that next question of what's appropriate for journals versus books versus monographs versus blogs versus podcasts versus webinars versus live events and that all those things should be integrated and thought of as as one piece of the content strategy yeah so what's the best media to be yes, distributing exactly. based on the type of content and that kind of you know leads me into another question so as i'm working with associations and they may not uh some of them are are new so they represent newer professions they haven't been you know established for a hundred years um, like a lot of associations have. And then others um, are just at a point right now where they're, they're going to this level where they're starting to ask questions about, you know, should we have, for example, a professional magazine? So mm -hmm. there are, you know, I, I can think of, you know, some of my clients that, that just don't have a uh, periodical type publication or what I think mm -hmm. we would have called a periodical type of publication that's coming out on a regular basis. And then others might have just had the journal, the more academic side, but not that professional magazine. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the value of a professional magazine? So it's not research-based necessarily, mm -hmm. but necessarily, but it's um, you know what's the purpose of that, and how does that fit into um, elevating the profession if we're thinking about it from a professional association perspective um, and the association's brand in general. Sure. No, that's 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 a great question. I think it's you know it really comes down to understanding for each association what's your audience and what's the value proposition that you're trying to provide to that audience and what is it that they need that that you can provide as a trusted resource as a curator of information and content. What is it that you can provide to them in a publication like a. a a trade or professional publication that they're not necessarily getting somewhere else or that you can do better than what might be out there being published by someone else. And I think you know it, it definitely depends on the, in the individual society and association, but absolutely that's, you know, that to me is part of that sort of publishing and content audit and, and analysis is looking at where are there opportunities for you as a, as a society and an association to provide something to your members that may not be what you've thought of as the traditional journal or, or, or publication or, or book or whatever it is that you happen to have been publishing for either a long time or as a new organization. What's that niche that you can cover for people that they're not necessarily getting from somebody else? Yeah, and I think that, you know, my experience, um, both as, as a professional reading these types of, of magazines, but also for some of my clients is that they're extremely popular. Um, even in hard copy still, they're extremely popular <laughs> because they're highlighting, you see thought leaders in the field, there's irregular columns that are coming from people just like them, professionals just like them, um, as well as um, you know, a, a kind of a good amount of emerging content. Um, it, it doesn't seem like even as we go to more digital formats, it doesn't seem like the, the demand for information is decreasing, even as much information as we have and as much content is out there. Would I be right in assuming that we're just consuming more content than ever before? Ooh, well, we're certainly we're certainly being exposed to more content okay. than ever before. I th and I think you're, you're right. I mean, we are consuming more content probably because we have access to really more 
specific and more personalized content. And that's another piece of looking at your strategy and what you're developing mm. is, you know, it used to be that societies would have a very broad membership base. They'd publish a lot of different things that would sort of touch on different things. But we have the, you know, we have the ability now with, with data analytics and with information that we're capturing about our end users to really understand who's coming to us, what are they looking for, you know, what are the audiences that are, that are um, out there and how can we best, you know, sort of produce content that's going to meet their needs. And it allows us to do a little bit more in terms of something that's more specific and personalized to, to smaller groups, as opposed to having to do something that had to go out to a very broad audience in the past and, and hope that you would connect with the people who found it. Now it's a lot easier to identify that specialization and deliver it to them. Yeah. And I think that that, and, and that, that that's the role of, of the society, right? Is, is to really, again, be that that trusted curator of content that meets the need of that end user. And, and so part of a, the process of looking at your membership, your needs analysis, um, doing all the things as you're looking at content strategy is understanding what are those niches that you need to cover and, and what's the most effective, cost-effective way to be able to deliver the information that they need. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on the OrgSource team is, is really, related to what I think is the interesting intersection in, in our world of um, kind of traditional association value and, and the impact of, uh, of having a digital strategy. So when we talk about you know, that personalization of content or the, the customized content that we're, that's hugely popular right now, we're seeing lots and lots of associations do um, kind of custom content new, newsletters, aggregated, mm -hmm content newsletters um, or daily briefings or you know whatever form they take. It is that intersection of, of digital delivery and technology and content that makes it possible to provide that benefit to your members. Absolutely. And I, I like to try to encourage those, those organizations, think of yourself as the curator. You, know, you, have, you have the ability to get access to all this different information. Um, and it can be from different experts. It can be from things outside of your organization. And you have, you have the ability now with, with all the digital tools that are available to us to distill all that into something that's, that's very customizable for, for you know, more and more segmented audiences. And that's where societies can really play a role in thinking about their content strategy and what, and what they're delivering. And you're even seeing that um, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to sort of putting on my medical society journal hat. You know, you're seeing that with some of the biggest uh, groups out there. When you look at the AMA um, that created the JAMA network, you know, JAMA used to be a, a, a one publication that covered all of medicine. And now you've got the JAMA network where there's all of these little sub journals that are specific to different parts of medicine and healthcare. And they're able to do that because of this, the, these, the, the ability now with digitization to do specialization. And the thing is that, that using them as a, the 800 pound gorilla example, but you know what, even specialty societies can do the same thing because they've got small groups of specialists in their organization too. And there's probably not somebody who's got an entire organization taking care of them. So they have a great opportunity to bring real value to that subset of people. Yeah, something you said earlier is, is, is rattling around in my brain and is really intriguing to me, um, that I think that traditionally associations had a publication group that was kind of a silo within the organization. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, what I thought I heard you saying as you were talking about it, that publications 
to be for those staff to be the most impactful and for uh, publishing to be impactful for the organization, it's probably um, also best thought of as a shared services department. So not just, you know, kind of its own silo pushed apart from, you know, membership and mm -hmm. events and others. But if we were to think organizationally more at, about the publishing division as a shared service that cut across these other areas of the business, it probably, you know, could be that rising tide that's floating the organizational boat in essential, essentially. Is that what you're saying? You know that I, yeah, that's a great. You, it's exactly what I'm saying, and you said it probably a lot better than I can. I think it's um, it, what's fascinating to me is it all depends on you know, what we think of as publishing. You know, traditionally, we think of publishing as magazines, journals, books, things that that we still think of them as as these print sort of containers. But really, any information that you're putting out there to people is publishing. And so when I, when I think about organizations, organizations inherently are publishing organizations because they're publishing content, whether it's in, in a format, like I said before, that it doesn't matter if it's a blog or a podcast or a webinar or whatever, this is content that you're getting out to people. So thinking about that on a broader term and thinking beyond that thing where, okay, we, the journals over here or the, or the magazines over here, but then we've got education over here. And sometimes they don't know what the, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. It's really important to make sure that they're, they're there's this integration among that as you're developing your content strategy to sort of have a curriculum, of course, that you're trying to uh, take out to your various constituents and understanding what's the best format or container or delivery mechanism for those various aspects of your curriculum. And that's where sort of this whole th thought of an integration takes place. As, as, and then when you tie that in with things like digital transformations, where then you're trying to decide, okay, you said before, a lot of trade publications are super popular in print. That's true. You know, I've been hearing for 25 years since the, the, the web came along that print was going to be dead and print, print still going strong. But there's certainly a movement toward more online publishing and digital publishing because, it's, of course, it's much more efficient, cost-effective, and saves an organization money when it can deliver things digitally. And you've also got certain audiences who pr prefer to read things on their smartphones, tablets, or whatever device they have handy at the time. And so having that, that ability to audit the different things that you're doing and understanding, well, what really makes sense for print? What doesn't make sense for print? What makes sense for this other type of channel for information delivery it has to all be part of the mix. And then um, I just want to touch on one other thing because this is something that I see so commonly and, and I have to just talk about it. When, if you have a, a, a publication, you've got an editor of a, of a publication, a lot of organizations confuse editorial independence with um, siloing. They feel like that the, the organization has to leave the editor alone because supposedly the publications have to have editorial independence. And I think that it's important to understand editorial independence means your editor should have the ability to publish the content that the editor sees fit to publish so that your publications don't become influenced by this year's president, this, this year's committee chair, or whatever who has an agenda. However, when you're thinking about an, an annual meeting and develop, developing programming for your webinars and for your other digital delivery uh, educational pieces, 
the one person who probably has the best sense of what's the most popular and cutting edge content is the editor of your publication, your journal, because they're getting the latest research, they're getting all that stuff. If you're not including them in discussions about topics and content for other things in your organization, oh my goodness, you're really missing an opportunity. And so I really encourage people to think about how they can integrate that. Um, and, and it even goes back to the whole idea of when you're choosing an editor for your publications, that editor search, that editor selection process is incredibly important because you want somebody who's going to be in step with the organization, but also understands that there's a lot of responsibility as an editor for determining what's appropriate to publish in the various publications. They just got, they need to be able to work and work integrated with everybody else on brainstorming on, on other ways to showcase that content besides just the publication that they're editing. You know, that is so true. And that was my experience as well. Um, when I was at uh, Apex, now ASCM, um, mm -hmm. I had a very, very talented uh, director, Jennifer Proctor, who when we, um, she published the magazine, she had a, was the senior editor of the magazine. But um, when we when we started engaging her with the uh, content committee for the mm -hmm. annual conference, um, she not only was able to bring the topic, she was able to bring the speakers. Right, because, right, absolutely. Yeah, these were the people she was in touch with and interviewing for the magazine or they were columnists in the magazine. And that cross-fertilization um, really elevated the content. We could see it in the reviews once we did that. So I, you know, I would just second that to associations that aren't, if you have a publications department and you're not involving those folks um, in your, your conference content or um, other types of content, micro learning, you know, whatever is coming out right now, you're missing an internal opportunity. Um, it essentially costs you nothing. And they're the experts that other people are looking to leverage. Yep, yep, absolutely. Well said. Yeah, it, that's great. So, uh, Steve, when you are working with an association that, you know, essentially feels like they're not maximizing the potential of, of either publications that they have right now or publishing in general, um, maybe they want to be seen more as thought leaders and they need to be able to get content out there and get it to specific audiences. What's your process for putting together a strategy with them? What, what are the kinds of things you're looking at? Well, of course, you know, I, I mean, of course, there's always you, you need to do sort of an inventory of, of what, what they have, um, you know, comparing it to what their goals are as an organization. You know, do that audit, do that assessment. Take a look at, at things. Do a little bit of an you know an operations audit as well, and and looking at you know all the pieces that, of, of things that are going together and how they're getting their content out. A lot of times there's there's a lot of gaps that happen that that aren't always obvious to, to, to the societies because they've been ingrained in doing things a certain way. And so having somebody come in from the outside and look at look at things to be able to say, oh, you know, what if we did this? What if we did this? Engaging some, some of their thought leaders in some of those conversations to say, well, what if we did this? You know, how could we do this better? How could we do this more efficiently? How could we serve this audience better? And, and what would be the appropriate type of uh, publication or, 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 or content format? For that, you know, looking at that whole sort of assessment of, of the inventory, how it's being put together, how it's being put out, and then you know, getting the feedback loop from the end users of what is what it is that they're wanting, as well as looking at their analytics to see what's being used. You know, all that plays a part in doing sort of that that audit and that analysis. And and I I do urge organizations to do more than do things like readership surveys and things like that because those feedback surveys are always excellent, but the real truth is in your analytics 
people often say they're reading something or accessing something, but your downloads and your, your accesses and, and uh, all those things will tell you a lot more about what's really getting used versus what people tell you that they're using and, and what's valuable. And so do, doing that whole sort of process of looking at those things typically helps to shed some, some insights on what it is that they could either do better or differently or, or perhaps new things and new opportunities that they could have that would provide success to their to their publishing program and provide value to their end users. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think our digital team would say that um, often in an assessment like that, you'll find out that they're not collecting the analytics, mm -hmm. that they don't have access to the analytics. So they're just kind of guessing um, or, or in, inferring from the readership surveys, the value of yeah. the content. Yeah, and that's really important. And you know, that kind of leads me into another topic, which is, you know, for organizations that are self-publishing, you know, they, they need to make sure that when they're setting up their, their partnership contracts with different vendors that do different services for them, that they're getting the ability to get that get access to those analytics downstream. Or if they're working with a publisher, a commercial publisher, making sure that they're working with the publisher to, to communicate, here's the type of analytics that we're going to need to get to, to do things. And because they, they have that, it's just a matter of the societies knowing what is it that we, are, we can ask for, getting that information and, and sort of being able to sift through it and, and analyze it appropriately. And self-publishing is a big topic of interest right now too. Are you working with associations you know, in terms of evaluating self-publication, working with a partner, or even as, I don't know what the proper terminology for this is, so you'll have to correct me, but in essence, selling your publication so that, <laughs> you know, you're, um, I'm thinking about arrangements with publishers like Elsevier. Commercial publishers, yeah. Well, well, no, that, that's, a, that's a, I'm glad you said that because th there are situations in some cases um, when you work with a commercial publisher, some organizations do in fact sell their publications to the publisher. However, most organizations still own their publications, but they, they're really in a business relationship with a commercial publisher where the commercial publisher provides the, the really all the business operations and, and the publishing operations. And then the, the organization, typically there's some type of a revenue share uh, or agreement or, or whatever you know, the situation is with their particular publications if they ge generate revenue. So, uh, or, or, the, or they pay this, the publisher a, a member fee to sort of cover the costs of the publication if it's a publication that doesn't generate revenue. But, but yeah, I, that, that's absolutely uh, one of the things that I do is work with organizations that need to do an assessment of if they're self-publishing, what, what's the, and, and they want to continue to self-publish, what are the things that they need to do to ensure that they're doing it as efficiently as possible? Because there's a lot of technological uh, changes that have happened that can allow you to, to save costs and publish more efficiently. Or is it time to consider a, a commercial publishing relationship? And if that's the case, ensuring that when you do that sort of RFP for various publishers, you're looking at um, what publisher is the correct fit. For example, there are big commercial publishers, there's small academic presses. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of difference between different types of publishers and helping people navigate identifying the best partners as well as negotiating agreements that will provide them the most value is, is an absolutely crucial part of, of the, the things that I can bring and, and want to bring to OrgSource and to its clients because it's, I've been through that myself. I've taken a self-published uh, journal, moved it to commercial publishing. I've helped organizations move from one commercial publisher to another commercial publisher that was a better fit um, and, and also to do assessments of a lot of their internal things. And every organization should be doing this because there's so much change and disruption going on. You really, you don't know what you don't know until someone comes in and helps you 
get, kind of get your head around that. Yeah, I think it's complex and I think it's also very specialized. And, um, you know, I feel like I have a decent background in it. And as I'm listening to you, there's so many things going on in my head right now that, you know, what seems apparent to me is with all the change in the content and the publishing side of association businesses that a publication strategy is going to have a shelf life because there's just too much that's changing about how often do you recommend associations refresh their publication strategy um, and and their uh, the supporting operations? Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where it, you know it can't be the old school strategic plan where you go through a process, you do a five-year strategic plan, you write it all up, and then you set it on a shelf and say, "Yeah, we're doing the strategic plan. We're going to revisit it in four years and do another five-year strategic plan." I think this is one of those things that once you do it, it does need. Um, it, it does need regular revisiting. And, and, I, and I suggest that people take a look at it every single year. You should be re at least reviewing the basic tenets of what you're doing because we're seeing change happen so rapidly, again, with open access, with di different digital tools coming available, with uh, different types of policies, with uh, a lot of things that are happening. It's changing very quickly. And, and of course, with the pandemic, we saw this enormous change of organizations that are A, having being forced to go digital, even if they weren't thinking they were quite ready to. Uh, I saw organizations whose publishers came to them and said, hey, we're not even going to publish, we're not even going to do print editions for the rest of 2020. Um, so you're going to be online only now. And for, so for a lot of organizations that were wrestling with the idea of, gosh, should we go online only or should we continue to do print? It, it kind of provided them with a great opportunity to gauge what the impact was of going online only. And um, so there's a lot of change that's happening. So I, you, know, you should be constantly revisiting and revamping and adjusting your course to make sure that you're staying uh, true to what you're trying to accomplish as a society. And it's gotta be integrated with the society's overall goals and strategy. And I think that the, the risk of not, of not doing it, of not kind of keeping your strategy up to date is that you're leaving something on the table. You're leaving revenue, potential revenue on the table. You're leaving potential audience on the table. Um, you're obviously not maximizing your brand um, and whatever thought leadership you might have to offer in the area. So, you know, there is a cost to not keeping that strategy up to date to the organization. Um, yeah, and, and, and the biggest, what you don't want to lose is member satisfaction if you're a member-based society. So yes, absolutely. All these things are crucial. And um, yeah, so wow, there, there's, oh, there's so many topics. I'm excited because I could talk about so many of these different things in depth. And, um, it, and it's an exciting time because there's just so much, so much going on. Yeah, there really is. Steve, thank you so much for your time and um, enthusiasm that you're bringing to this conversation today. Um, we look forward to uh, seeing what content you can bring to OrgSource as well and how you're working with us, um, not only our clients, but uh, helping to advance OrgSource as an organization and .org community. And just really appreciate you know, the opportunity to work with you and to talk to you today. My pleasure. I feel the same way as you can tell. I'm animated. I'm excited. I'm passionate about this topic. I can't wait to jump in and help people with the challenges that they're facing because um, it, it's one of those areas that's just um, something I've been doing for 25 years and I love doing it. And it's still as relevant today as ever. Absolutely. It remains a part of our future. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. Um, please be sure to check out our other podcasts on a variety of topics on association.4.0. 
and you can reach us at through Spotify or Apple or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed this episode and discover tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com to find out how to get your organization on track to Association 4.0. You can also engage in other educational content by becoming a member of .org community or reading our books on Association 4.0, which you can find on Amazon. We look forward to hearing from you soon.